right, well, if you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew rack around you somewhere, a black one, We're, and why don't you to find uh, Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6 is where we're going to be. As you're turning there, uh, Luke chapter 6 is the, what we're going to look at here this morning, actually, is the completion of Jesus's, what, what Luke calls the Sermon on the Plain. What we've seen as Jesus has uh, given this sermon to his disciples is he began really with a perspective on life, didn't he? He began with uh, talking about certain circumstances that we might find ourselves in as a result of our relationship to the Son of Man. That as we have made a decision to follow Christ as a disciple, he said, blessed are you uh, when you weep. Blessed are you when you are poor. Blessed are you when people speak evil of you and persecute you and say all sorts of things about you because of uh, your relationship to the Son of Man. And he began with this perspective on life that we really need uh, from Jesus' uh, eyes and Jesus' thoughts because otherwise what we have a tendency to do as disciples of Christ is connect Christ's love to us, to our circumstances. And whether our circumstances are riding high, we'll say, man, God really loves me today. And whether our circumstances are really in the dumps, we'll say, God doesn't love me that much today. And we need to begin our relationship with Jesus with a whole perspective shift on how we look at life. Because when we step into relationship with Jesus Christ, we are now swimming upstream. We are going against the tides uh, in life in a sinful world. And I'm sure you found that, and we've talked about that. Well, last week we also looked at how we are to respond to those who might oppose us, persecute us. And Jesus gave you a whole litany, a whole list of imperative verbs that you're to do good, that you're to love, that you're to be merciful, that you're to uh, essentially act uh, on, your, on the balls of your feet toward those who might disrespect you, those who might uh, oppress you, might persecute you. And Jesus gave us sort of the marching orders for his disciples in the world, that we are meant to be agents uh, of active love, that we are meant to be culture creators because of our relationship with the Son of Man. Now, Jesus, as a good preacher, is going to get to the end of this sermon, and he is going to give you application. So you can't take this message out of the context of Luke chapter 6, otherwise you'll, we'll run out of here doing all sorts of things that aren't really connected to the flow of thought that Jesus has given. But Jesus, as a good preacher, is also going to give you a whole list of images uh, he gives you a whole bunch of illustrations that feel a little bit disconnected. And I'm going to show you how Jesus is going to consistently weave these links of these illustrations together to get to the end and give you really the most singularly important thing in the life of a Christian. It is the thing that is going to separate the faithful from the unfaithful. It's going to separate the true followers from the false followers. It's going to separate those who understand what Jesus has said and those who merely give lip service to him. In fact, it's probably the most significant decision that you can make to grow as a believer is to listen to what Jesus says here in these passages. These 10 little bitty verses all they're going to be are images put in front of you. And they're all going to be images of contrast. They're all set, uh, sets of two. Left and right, up and down, all opposites. Good trees, bad trees. Good followers, bad followers. Good houses, bad houses. Good fruit, bad fruit. There's no third way. 
So that as Jesus gets ready to close this sermon and he's now going to say, my disciples are getting ready to step into this world. He said, there's only two ways that you can respond to what I say. And that's what he's going to give you here in these 10 verses. All right, you with me? All right, let's take a look here. Luke 6, we're going to be in verses 39 to 49. Let me pray and ask God for his grace. Father, for these few minutes as we look at your word, would you uh, not leave us alone? Would you disturb us? Would you cause us to reflect on the areas of life that need change and renovation? That you would shape us as men and women in this place, as people in this church, to be uh, radically devoted to the things that you say to us here this morning. Where we need to repent, Father, we pray that you would convict us. Where we need to change and respond differently, we pray that you would give us the power to do that. And that we would honor you by our obedience to your word here this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Luke 6, and we're going to start there in verse 39. Luke 6, 39. He also told them a parable. Now, I just want to give you a run and start into what Jesus has said up to this point because everything that Jesus is about to say is going to be more proverbial, more uh, based in this word of uh, what, what Luke calls for us is a parable. They're images with a story. They're meant to give you an idea of what Jesus has said up to this point. Now, just look at the previous paragraph, would you? You remember the image that he left with us last week. Everything, the, what was measured out to you is shaken down, pressed together poured out into your lap. Remember that? That's the image of reward and God responding to that faithful decision that we make to love those who persecute us, to be kind to those who are not kind to us because of what we say we believe about Jesus Christ, to bear with, uh, bear with one another in relationship with those people who maybe have nothing but disrespect for you and the fact that you believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And you'll see that paragraph is what he said. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to God. So everything, every measure back to you. Everything now that's going to follow, as I said, is going to be in these images. So here's how Jesus is going to paint the picture of the exhortation he has just given. Did you feel convicted last week? Did you feel like, boy, Jesus just gave us some things to do that are pretty difficult? And what we said last week is Jesus takes the lead. As he is the good teacher, he's the one who's going to be beaten and abused. He's the one who's going to be disrespected and stripped naked and nailed to a cross. Now with that image in mind, Jesus is now going to give you application. And he's going to do it in the midst of this parable. Here's what he said. Can a blind man lead a blind man? What's the answer? Man, you are sharp. I love our church is so sharp. You're wise people, you know that a blind person cannot lead a blind person. So right from the beginning, we have an image of two individuals. Two individuals with a similar problem. We also have an image of two individuals with the same problem, one of which believes that he's a good leader. And another of which believes that this leader can get him where he needs to go. Uh, when I was in college, we decided to take a trip to Ocean City, me and my friends. And me and the group of people I was with arrived in Ocean City. Uh, and we were on the phone with some other individuals uh, who we were supposed to meet in Ocean City. 
And we had taken the, the hour-long, multiple-hour-long drive to the beach. We're excited about our weekend all being together. And we got on the phone with our other group of people who said they were also going to meet us there. Only they were also in Ocean City. Now, if you don't know anything about the Northeast and the Northeastern geography, you may not know that there is an Ocean City, Maryland, and there is an Ocean City, New Jersey. Now, we were where we were supposed to be, obviously. We were in Ocean City, Maryland. And we got the call from these two brothers who we knew in college, and they were kind of goofballs, and that was their kind of their trademark. Uh, and they said, yes, we also are in Ocean City. And we kept looking around, waiting for them to arrive at the hotel, and they never seemed to arrive. And then we had one last call with them where they said, all right, we made it to the hotel. We can't find the hotel in Ocean City. And strangely enough, they never called us back. That was the last time we heard of them. <laughs> because they decided the relationship is not worth it to confess the fact that we went not to the wrong city. We went to the wrong state. So if you've ever been trying to navigate your way through life and directions and geography and going to a new place, you know the importance of following somebody who knows where they're going, right? So Jesus begins this parable with this image of two blind guys trying to go somewhere, one of them incredibly confident that he is a leader, and the other one incredibly confident that this guy knows where he's going. And Jesus begins with this dichotomy to let you know that in this story, they aren't going to get anywhere. Now, look at the second part of the question. Will they not both fall into the pit? Now, the issue in Jesus' initial parable is that one of the individuals is confident that he has the ability to lead. The other individual is confident that he is going to follow this great leader. But Jesus not only says they can't lead one another, number two, he says that the, the, the consequences of this relationship are disastrous, right? This is inevitable in this relationship, is they will both uh, fall into a pit. Now, so this is how Jesus begins to end his sermon. This is the final closing remarks that Jesus is giving. So you have this image in your mind of two blind guys walking around who inevitably will fall into a pit. Then Jesus says this. Look at verse 40. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Now, in the context of Luke chapter 6, we've been talking about Jesus' words to the disciples, right? That's been the whole tenor of Luke chapter 6. Jesus is saying to the disciples who he's training, who he's communicating these spiritual truths, these, these new kingdom values to, he's been telling them, these are, this is the way you ought to see life. This is the way you ought to respond to persecution and difficulty. And then Jesus introduces a term here and really his second picture of teacher and pupil. And throughout the majority of Luke and really even the New Testament teacher it almost solely refers to Jesus himself. So Jesus gives a picture of two blind guys, one of which doesn't know where he's going, the other guy who's confident that he's able to follow him, and then he introduces you a learning image, a learning parable, a parable where there's a relationship between teacher and pupil. Remember what Jesus said last week when you are... Uh, be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful. Remember that? And one of the things Jesus said is that you are becoming like your heavenly father. You'll be sons of the most high. When you take these values and live them out, you will begin to take on the family resemblance. 
And when Jesus introduces a teacher and pupil dynamic, a teacher and pupil metaphor, what he's telling us is that our relationship with those we follow is incredibly influential, isn't it? Anybody ever have a good coach? Okay, I'll try something else. <laughs> Not a sports church. Uh, ever have a good teacher? Okay, you've had good teachers. Ever had parents who taught you the way that you ought to go in life? Right? Uh, teachers, no coaches, parents. Uh, you get the idea. Uh, listen, the people that we choose to follow are incredibly influential in our lives, are they not? When you come to people in life who are older, who are wiser, who are ahead of you, when you face difficulty and hardship and they are able to give you counsel that is godly, that is wise, that is Christ-centered, aren't those important relationships? Well, Jesus recognizes that. He recognizes that we are all influencers, and we are all followers. Now, the followers language has been used, you know, in the world of social media, but it's interesting to consider this in the light of what Jesus is saying, is that the people you follow have a tendency to influence you. If you're a blind man following the blind man, are you going to get influenced by the blind man who thinks he can see? Yeah. You're going to inherit certain patterns of thinking. You're going to inherit certain consequences. You're going to inherit certain values. And when Jesus begins this story for us and shows us a contrast between two blind men and now the teacher and the pupil, he has in, in his mind's eye the fact that you are becoming what he calls here fully trained. Fully trained is used in other contexts in the New Testament of mending a bone back to being restored. Do you know that? of being fully equipped, of being restored back to health. What happens to the blind man leading the blind man? They, all, they both end up in a pit. What happens to the pupil who follows a teacher like Jesus is he ends up being like his teacher. What's the goal of discipleship in Jesus' mindset? It's that you, men and women, girls and boys, might be conformed into the image of God's dear son. You hear me? What is the goal? Not just believing good things out here about Jesus, agreeing with his perspective on life, being nice to people who disagree with you. No, no, no. It's way deeper than that. It's that you are taking on the very values and perspectives and character of Jesus Christ. What does Jesus want you to be? He wants you to be like him. He wants you to be fully trained. What is Jesus' ambition for your life? Maturity, growth. Christ-likeness. And he recognizes that when he puts it in this context is that we won't be above our teacher, but the greatest goal of a good teacher like Jesus is that he would have sons and daughters who look like him, whose, whose character is taken into their lives and lived out. Amen? Isn't that what we want for our kids? Right? That our kids would grow in Christ-likeness. That they would begin to take the values of Jesus Christ. Not just my warped, poorly applied convictions and values, but they would connect their life to Jesus Christ and begin to take on his character. To respond to life the way Jesus would have them respond. That's the whole goal of good discipleship. Amen? That's what we want. That's what we want for you. When we talk about taking your next step with Jesus, we want you to grow in godliness, in contentment, in holiness, in righteousness. We want you to take on the image of Jesus Christ. 
Two blind men end up in a pit. A pupil willing to follow a good teacher, fully trained, like his master. That's the power of discipleship and influence in Jesus' life. You know, this, uh, in, in this time, in the ancient Near East, when a follower would choose to connect himself to a teacher, it wouldn't be book learning because we don't have those. It wouldn't be go read this and then come back and talk to me. This follower would kind of embody the lifestyle of his teacher. He'd be with him all the time. He'd be interested in what he's saying. He'd be interested in the thing, in the counsel he's giving. He'd be interested in his way of life. He would take on the very pattern of his teacher's lifestyle. So Jesus says, this is the goal. You apprentice with Jesus, you become more and more like Jesus. Now that's an important idea, right? You agree? Do you want to be more like Jesus? I want to be more like Jesus. I'm interested in that. I'm interested in being more godly, holy, content, righteous, expressing the righteousness I have by faith in Christ from year after year after year after year, right? Now, Jesus is going to give you three pictures, and he's going to tie them all together. This is sort of the setting, these two, these two contrasts, two blind men, teacher and pupil. He gives you that mindset so that you might be able to interpret all, the, all of what comes next. But he's going to give you three pictures. He's going to give you a picture about seeing. He's going to give you a picture about uh, speaking, and then he's going to give you a picture about doing, okay? Here you go. Look at verse 41. Why? It's, you're always in trouble when Jesus asks you a question like that, aren't you? Man, I don't like being on the other side of that question. But Jesus asks, because it's, it's a reflection question, right? You ever ask your, your kids, why are you doing that? And what's the answer? I don't know. I don't know. It happens all the time in my house. I don't even know why I ask that question. It's, t it's not a helpful question at all. They don't reflect on it at all. They're on to the next thing immediately. Forget it. Happy Father's Day. <laughs> Verse 41. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? You know what I'm good at? Pointing out the stuff that other people need to change. Aren't you good at that? Don't you have a PhD in that? I use the driving example all the time. Don't you think the world would be better if people drove the way you told them to drive? Go faster. Slow down. Use your blinker. Use your other blinker. Don't we all have a tendency to do this? Isn't this convicting? Right? We all have a tendency to see the sinful patterns, tendencies, foibles, personality quirks in other people. How fast can you see them? You can make a list in 30 seconds. And Jesus begins now to invite this moment of consideration. All right, we understand two blind men, not good. We understand connecting ourselves to Jesus Christ, us as the pupil, him as the teacher. We'll grow in Christ like this. But now he exposes something in us. He reveals something that we all have a tendency to do, which is to be critics. We all have a way of critiquing other people first before we critique ourselves, which is what he says. Why don't you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? It's meant to be like, a, it's meant to be like, a, like an eyelash, like a little bitty piece of shaft, like a little bitty twig, like a little bitty speck. 
that's in your eye. And you don't notice the log that is in your own eye. Now in English, the words see and notice really are pretty close, aren't they? They're pretty close terms. But in Greek, they're different terms altogether. See is the very simple thing of things that our eyes pick up. But notice is not that word. Notice is a word that Jesus uses when he says, consider the lilies of the field. It's a term of reflection. It's a term that James uses when he says, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. It's meant to be a word of close consideration, which as Jesus begins this image, which is really a humorous image, isn't it? Of someone with a two-by-six sticking out of their eye trying to help someone else who has an eyelash. It's meant to be humorous. You're meant to laugh at that. But the story and the, the point and the moral that we take away is that why is it, why are our hearts so primed to be able to pick up the inconsistencies in other people and yet so unaware of our own inconsistencies? Doesn't that scare you? We have this conversation from time to time in our elder room or in our leadership team meetings where uh, AJ has said uh, to us, because I don't struggle with this, AJ does. So AJ says, <laughs> I'll use him as an example. He goes, I don't know what it's like to be on the other side of AJ. And man, that is such a wise statement. Because I can't see what it's like to experience me. I can't see what it's like to experience Steve in the minds of my kids, in the eyes of my wife, in the, the, as people sit and I give them counsel. What is it like to receive counsel from Steve? Man, that is such a convicting statement to say. And Jesus says we all have a tendency to be able to easily point out the sins and struggles and quirks in other people. But do you notice how our own lives are filled with complexities? Our own lives are, and the decisions we make are filled with nuance and filled with, with relational expectations and hopes and dreams. And to all of us, our, our behaviors and our decisions make total sense, right? But other people have a way of pointing out, you are inconsistent. Now, what is the problem in this story? Look at verse 42. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself don't see the log that is in your own? Now, did you see in the sensory language, Jesus began with two blind men. And here, he begins with a vision problem, right? So we're, we're tracking together in his development of the analogies. So he begins with blind people, then he begins with people with severe vision problems. But he attaches another sensory word to it. Because now, these two brothers, one of which has a speck and one of which has a two-by-six in his eye, are in relationship with one another, right? But it's not a relationship of just mutual conversation. It's a relationship of correction, it's a relationship of where one individual is trying to give assistance and help to another individual. And the reason we know that is that he can confidently say, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye. But Jesus says, you don't see, you don't notice, you don't pay attention, you are, you're unaware. You haven't given any thought to applying the truth that you think this person needs to yourself. You ever listen to a sermon and you go, I know who needs this one. <laughs> the occupational hazard as a preacher. And Jesus says that's a danger, isn't it? It's a danger to go, man, I want to send that sermon to this person because 
I love them, not because they need to change. I mean, no, I love them. Heard this and thought of you. <laughs> you ever do that? How's it feel when you have somebody correct you that you know has some stuff that hasn't been dealt with? You feel the same way Jesus does. Look at the remainder of the verse. You hypocrite. You know, you know what, what's the difference between a hypocrite and a liar? Do you know that? Do you know what the difference is? A liar is somebody who says, I will do something, and then they don't. A hypocrite is different. A hypocrite is somebody who states that they have all of these values, but they don't live according to the values that they say they profess. In the Greek, the word is used of actors. And actors in that time would put on a mask and they would speak out from under the mask so that you would see one thing about them, but they wouldn't really be who they are. And the only way you could tell by what was because of the things that they say. And you would say, this person is play acting. They aren't really consistent. They don't really have integrity. They don't really believe and follow the values that they proclaim to have. And Jesus says, this person who has the plank in their eye is a hypocrite, which means they're great at applying the truth of what Jesus says to other people, but they have a really hard time taking Jesus' truth and applying it to themselves. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. Now, a lot of times we can read a passage like this and kind of dismiss it by doing something like this, where we see the problem in somebody else's life and we refuse to give them counsel. We refuse to speak truth. We refuse to go to the scriptures and to assist our brother or sister with what Jesus wants to say to them at that time because we believe that we need to be sinless to be able to help anybody. Listen, you don't need to be sinless. I couldn't stand up here in front of you if I was sinless. You couldn't parent if you were sinless. You couldn't give counsel to anybody anywhere if you were sinless. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying that you need to do the hard work of applying his word to your life when? Starts with F, rhymes with thirst. First. Do that work first. Imagine a relationship between teacher and pupil where the pupil says, I heard what you said and I went and told my friend. Did you apply it? No, no, no. But I heard what you said and I went and told my friend. Wait a minute. Our relationship is twisted then. You don't understand how this relationship between teacher and pupil works. I, my goal is that you would become more like me. Therefore, when I speak to you, you need to put into practice things that I say before you try to help other people. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. So how are we really going to help anybody else in our church? Let's just leave it here in our church. How are we ever really going to serve the goal of Christ-likeness in our church if we're not willing to obey what Jesus tells us at the start? If we spend the majority of our time identifying the sins in other people, we never do any repenting on our own. Right? This is... When somebody is applying God's word to their life and then they seek to help me, that person comes across as humble, as in need of wisdom, as prayerful, as gentle, as aware of their own sins in the light of their own relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen? You ever get corrected by somebody who is humble? Isn't that wonderful? No? Okay. Maybe that happens for you in the context of our church one day. That would be awesome. 
Isn't that how we want correction to happen in the life of our church? Amen? Don't you want to be corrected not by arrogant people who think they know it all and don't need to apply God's word to their life, but you would rather be corrected by somebody who's prayerful, humble, gentle, exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit? I'll take this one. And Jesus says, do the work first. Then you'll see clearly. Then you'll be able to serve others. Then you'll be able to have an impact. Then you'll be able to actually come alongside other people. So the danger in the first picture Jesus gives us with teacher and pupil and two blind men is be careful who you follow, right? Be careful who you attach your life to. In this picture, be careful of making lots of applications of others without making any personal applications in your own life, in your own relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, we do this from time to time in our house. We kind of recognize this. If any of you have kids and we typically read the Bible in the morning. And man, we all have great answers around the table before we get up. But man, within that first 90 seconds of getting up from the table, you know what happens? We forget every single thing we've read, every single truth we said we believe. Because then we step into real life and we recognize, oh, I have to apply the truths I said I believe. I have to actually be kind. I have to actually be merciful. So watch his transition. He's going to explain it with verse 43. For, verse 43, no good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Two men, teacher pupil. Uh, what did we just talk about? It was good. Hypocrite. Two brothers, two eyes. Now Jesus talks about two trees. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Verse 44, for each tree is known by its own fruit. And that's really the key of this next picture that he gives us. It's, the key is identification. Now, I'm not good at identifying trees. We, were, uh, we took a trip to Tennessee a couple weeks ago and we were kids were out playing at a place where all the cousins were and they were running through the bushes and my brother came out and he goes you need to watch out because there's poison ivy over there and I can't I, I didn't know that so I walked over to the poison ivy and he goes yeah 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 well this is this kind of tree and this is Virginia creeper and this is poison ivy so the kids have touched the poison ivy and they need to go I had no idea I go it's green it's tree it's and I'm not I can't identify those things but when I was growing up as a kid, we had a peach tree. And the peach tree wasn't our tree. It hung over the back fence in our backyard. And you know the way that I could identify that tree, that it was a peach tree? It's because you know how many rotten peaches I stepped in mowing the lawn. We had an olive tree in our front yard. You know how I identified the olive tree? Because I stepped on rotten olives all the time. And the picture that Jesus gives you is a picture that is meant to help you understand the nature of something. That's the contrast that he gives you. Each tree is known by its own fruit. You can easily identify a tree. It's hard to identify, identify trees if they don't have fruit, right? I don't know if it's a live oak or a maple or a birch or whatever. But Jesus says it's very clear to identify fruit, fruit trees. Very easy to do that. Each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, bushes nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. Now, watch the transition he makes here. You got the tree analogy? That makes sense, right? Yes? Okay. 45, the good person 
out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. Now he, he changes the analogy again. Are you tracking with what Jesus is doing here? Good trees, bad trees. Good fruit, bad fruit. Now he introduces a good person, which connects to a good tree that produces a good kind of fruit. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of this evil treasure, produces evil. Now, when you bring up fruit, and as we've already seen in the book of Luke, when somebody talks about fruit, John the Baptist talked about fruit, right? He warns the people who are coming out to be baptized by him. He calls them, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Remember that? And he went on to be very specific about the kind of behaviors that these people ought to engage in. He said, the soldiers don't collect. Uh, be content with your wages. He said, uh, don't charge more than you ought to. He said, this is the kind of life that should flow from your baptism of repentance. Well, Jesus introduces the idea of fruit here. And all of us, no matter who we are, when we think of fruit, we typically think of actions. We typically think of how our life looks. But that's not what Jesus is doing here because he's making a little bit of a different point. Now the first illustration he gave us with the trees talks about the nature of the trees. Here he's going to talk about the nature of people. What is the nature of people? The nature of a person is founded upon their good treasure. I use this passage all the time when I talk about conflict in the context of marriage. And I talk about uh, that the number one thing that you're going to be doing in marriage and all these young couples, I said, is not having sex. And all the young couples look at me like... <laughs> I said, the number one thing you're going to be doing in marriage is talking. And this is what Jesus says here. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. Good what? Good fruit, okay? The evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. Evil what? Evil fruit. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. What's the fruit? It's the words. How do I know what you love? How do I know the nature of who you are? All I got to do is listen. So do you see, what, now let me make one more application because Jesus uses a money term here, right? Do you see the money term? See, the money term is treasure. So that all the way through in Jesus' teaching, Jesus is always aiming at the heart. Do you know how I know who you are? Who you are is always formed by what you worship. You are by default a worshiper. You are by, by default someone who attributes great worth to things, to life, to relationships, to jobs, to raises, to disappointments, to uh, car wrecks, to new, new objects that you purchase. And your whole life radiates outward from the treasure that is in the middle of your heart. And it really determines the nature of who we are. That treasure determines our nature, determines our words. You see that? That's the point Jesus is making. You can't gather good fruit, i.e. good words, from a bad person. You can only gather good fruit, i.e. good words, good confessions from a good person. So that our words are always indicative of who we are on the inside. Jesus says over in Matthew 6, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Because we're talking about our nature. We're talking about who we are. What you say. You ever go in the comment section of YouTube? What does that tell you about mankind? That God should have judged them generations ago. You ever get, look at a Twitter feud? No, you don't use Twitter? No coaches and you don't use Twitter. 
I'm trying, guys. Like my illustrations, I just got to do better. I got to do better. So let's connect. You with me so far? You see that what, what, what is Jesus doing? He's really trying to get us to consider what is on the inside. What's happening at the heart level of our lives that is revealed by our words? Who are we really? What are the things that we treasure that shape our values that result in the things that we say to other people? How willing are we to follow Jesus? Are we willing to move the truth of this perspective that Jesus gives us in the beginning of the sermon into the center of our lives? Are we willing to make his word the central value? Are we really, really willing to respond to those who disagree and persecute and hate us with love and mercy and kindness and gentleness? Is that the core of who we are? Verse 46. Here's how he brings it home. Here's another why question. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? At this point, the conversation is done. There's no more talking. It's just Jesus talking. The next image he's going to give has zero conversation whatsoever. No opinions, no thoughts. This is the last thing that Jesus will say before he gives this picture and he closes the sermon. And he starts it with saying, Lord, Lord. Now, Lord, Lord may be just something you read and you go, okay, they call him Lord. But it's not actually just a passive title. It's an attribution of emotional emphasis. Anytime it's repeated like that, when you get into the New Testament, it's eager. It's intentional. It's emotional. It's people crying out, Lord, Lord. We're passionately committed to you. We're believing what you say. We want to do what it is you call us to do. But Jesus recognizes, do you have any, if you were to just kind of summarize up to this point, as, a, as the biblical scholars that you are, the value of words up to this point, what have words done for us up to this point in Jesus' illustration? They've caused us, they, they've revealed our arrogance, right? Our tendency to critique others rather than to evaluate ourselves. They cause us to question the central values of our life. They cause us to recognize that many times when we speak, we speak hypocritically. That we believe in these values about Jesus, but we don't actually act on them. They don't actually come out of our mouth. They cause us to be skeptical of those that we follow. And Jesus closes saying, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? To affirm his authority and yet to follow it up with a refusal to do what he says is as dangerous as following a blind man into a pit. It's as arrogant as doing eye surgery while having a two by six in your eye. And this is really the key of where Jesus takes the whole message. What are you going to do with who he is and what he says? Verse 47, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. This is the picture we should have in our minds every time we close our Bible after reading it in the morning. 
This is the picture that we should have in our minds every time somebody seeks to give us godly counsel with the Bible open. This is the image that should come to mind every time we seek to obey the things that he's told us to obey throughout the course of this sermon on the plane. Let me show you what he is like. And the doing them is really central to really these 10 verses. The doing is mentioned five different times. He doesn't say that trees make, uh, that, that trees produce fruit. He says that trees bear, same word here, literally trees do fruit. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Verse 48, here's what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. Now, I don't build houses. We've got guys in our church who build houses. I've watched houses being built. I've seen what they've done to put it, bring in the concrete and bring in the rebar and do the digging and to create a foundation. And arguably, making a foundation takes more time, takes more money, and it takes more effort. Chris, am I right? See? Talk to Chris. He builds houses. More time, more effort, more money. But as Jesus paints this picture for us, he, sh he shows us that the doing is connected to something, right? You're meant to, to draw the connection. The connection in the doing is in the digging, right? Because it's the doing and the digging that creates the avenue to the foundation. It's the willingness to get to the bottom, to get to the rock, to get to the place where this house isn't going to move. And it's going to take more time, more effort, more money, more pain, more calluses. He dug deep and he laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. And the interesting thing is that Jesus is giving consequences at the beginning, right? A blind man follows a blind man and they fall into a pit. Jesus gives consequences at the end. And he says, if you dig deep and you build your foundation on the rock, there's coming a day when that foundation will be tested. There's coming a day when things that are out of your control, when things that are stronger than you are, when a flood will come and will test the decisions that you have been making. And when that gets revealed is when the floods rise. And it could not shake it because it had been well, well built. So what's the point? The person who comes to Jesus and does what he says is protected through the inevitable storms of life. Are we gonna, it doesn't say storms don't come to this house, does it? It doesn't say build a strong house and it's always sunny. It says build a strong house and when the storms come, the house won't be destroyed. Now, he closes with the converse, verse 49. The one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was, literally in the Greek, mega. It's like looking at the aftermath of a Category 5. So why does Jesus do this? Why doesn't Jesus end the sermon singing with his hands in the air, singing a great song? Why doesn't he, why doesn't he end with this great hopeful picture? But instead, Jesus closes his sermon, he shuts his Bible, and he goes, look at the, the catastrophe 
of a refusal to do what I say. Because you can't get around disobedience. You can't get, in the Christian life, you cannot get around the essential requirement of doing what Jesus says. I've said this before in our church, obedience is hard. Amen? Is obedience hard? But is obedience creating the foundation that I can rest my life on and the storms of life will not touch me? The storms of life will not destroy me? When I build my life upon the rock, when I decide to close my Bible and then to go, oh God, would you change and shape my values and convictions such that what comes out of my mouth, that the fruit of my life might be reflective of the values on the inside. Would you give me the courage to obey what you say? Then what am I doing? Day by day by day, I am digging deep. I am building my life. I am finding the foundation and saying, here is where my home is going to be. Here is where I'm going to rest my life. Now, commentators note that this passage ends in the same way it begins. Would you go back to the beginning of Luke chapter 6 with me just for a minute? Look at the beginning of Luke chapter 6. Uh, sorry, the beginning of the sermon, not the beginning of Luke chapter 6. Look at Luke 6, 17. Luke 6, 17. He came down with them and he stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. And when we saw this passage, we, AJ shared with us that there's a massive group of people who is listening to Jesus. And then Jesus starts to talk to his disciples. But Jesus is still talking within earshot of people who are examining the values that he teaches them, are considering the truths that he teaches them. Now look at what it says in verse 18. The, all these people came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And you notice how those two words are similar to the exact words that Jesus gives at the end of the story about the two houses. To the one who comes to me and hears me, and does what I say, I'll show you what he's like. See, the, the key factor for your Christian maturity is not coming to church. The key factor in your Christian maturity is not just listening to good sermons, although good sermons are great. I like to think I preach lots of good sermons. But that really is not the functional, dynamic reality of the center of your life. It's not coming to Jesus, it's not hearing Jesus, it's whether or not you're going to obey Jesus. And we as a church would do you a disservice if we don't talk explicitly about what it means to obey. Amen? Right? Our discipleship gets warped and weak if we believe our discipleship is just all the things we think and feel about Jesus. All the things we like to posit about Jesus. But then when it comes to obedience, we fall off the rails. So Jesus closes the message being serious that if you neglect his words, you are headed for destruction. If you refuse to step into a discipleship relationship with him where you are embodying the values that he wants you to, you are headed for bad fruit, bad trees, and a great fall. It's that serious. It's that desperate. 
And when we as a church talk about obedience, we believe that when we're done praying and we're done seeking his face, we close the Bible and we plead with heaven to give us the strength to obey and to be the men and the women and the boys and the girls that God wants us to be, right? It is that serious because we believe there is destruction when we refuse to listen to what Jesus says. So he closes the message with nobody talking and all of us looking at the ruin of one house and the fact that the other house is standing. And he does it so that you would ask that question about where are you? Do you have a lot of good things to say about Jesus? But do you neglect the obedience? And the beauty with how this passage starts is that all these people come to him to hear him and to be healed. Anybody perfect this week? No. Me either. Because when we are confronted with the fact that there's only two ways to live, do you know what we do? We respond and we cry out to the one who has the power to heal our hearts. We cry out to the one who has the power to heal our hypocrisy, to heal our tendency to critique others rather than to evaluate ourselves. And that's the good news of this passage. The results are serious results. But there's one man who has the power and who the crowd seeks to touch them for power came out from him and healed them all. Amen? Let's pray and prepare our hearts for communion. Father, we acknowledge as we come to the Lord's table that we are uh, hypocrites many days. I myself am a hypocrite many days that I say I profess these things about who you are, but when we're confronted with the high call of obedience, we often fail. So Father, as we prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper here today, would you give us the courage to confess our sins, to repent of the ways in which we seek to produce good fruit on our own, we repent of the ways in which we're so given to be critics rather than to be humble recipients of your word. Would you change us and would you shape us in Jesus' name? Amen.